working on trying to find something here real quick. Bear with me. <clears throat> Good morning. It's the last, uh, last hurrah here for me. So, of course, we have to make it count right? We can't give you a, a short way out. It's got to be a long outro. So there's your fair warning. <clears throat> so we've been talking about calling. We've been talking about lots of different stuff. I'm not going to go through the entire um, summary of that. But anyway, we've covered a lot of stuff in terms of calling. And we get to cover more. So, <laughs> thank you, James. <laughs> so there's lots of patterns that go on with, with callings, right? And God is all about patterns. Like everything else that God does, a call has a consistent idea and a consistent goal behind it. But the particular form of that idea change according to God's plan for how he's going to work out his will and how he's going to provide for our needs. The substance of that call doesn't change, but the shape of it does. God's primary call to us, like we've been talking about, has always been the same since before the existence of sin even, but the shape of that has changed, and sometimes dramatically. So God's presented things in all sorts of different covenants and stuff, you know, from, you know, his original relationship with Adam to when everything went, um, you know, bad, and then he had Noah be his main man, and then um, Abraham comes onto the scene, and Moses, and then finally Christ. Like, all those things evolve, but the message is all the same. Essentially, come back to me, you know? That is the consistent message and calling for us to come back to God. Our individual callings and vocations are no different in that pattern that we have, we'll see um, differences between us in terms of our secondary callings, our vocational callings, but oftentimes that calling has a real similar uh, vein to it. Sometimes it does change, but there's always going to be similarities based on who we are as people and who God calls us to be in that, and so we're going to be working off of that. An authentic calling from God doesn't always look the same but it's subject to change. Um, and is subject to change, though there's a common thread in all of that. So we need to get acquainted with what a godly transition is in calling looks like. You know, if callings do change their form at the very least, then what does it look like when we change a calling? Whether that's because a calling was fulfilled, whether a calling is failed, or whether a calling is switched or added to. So, our prayer should be that we are able to fulfill what God has called us to do, right? Just as a blanket statement, that's what we want to do. That should be our focus. If God, God has called us to task, what can be more important than that? Our Creator has told us to do something. We better stand up and do it. But what does this look like as a calling draws to an ending point? We've looked, we've looked over the past you know, month or so about what callings look like, what it looks like to try to identify your calling, and what it looks like to sort of be in that. But what does that look like when you come to the end of it, hopefully fulfilling a calling? Well, let's look at Paul as a mentor. We have a lot of detail on Paul's life over a large scope, and so he's a really good person for us to look at, and he's a person with a very clear calling. So let's look at him. He fulfilled his major confirmed calling, right? to go as a missionary to the Gentiles. Let's see what he reveals about his mindset as he brings his work to completion in that. In Romans chapter 15, interestingly enough, that's right where we are in Bible study. Coincidence? Probably not. So, <clears throat> verse 16. I am a special messenger from Christ Jesus to you Gentiles. I bring you the good news so that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God made holy by the Holy Spirit. 
in that verse, we see Paul has a solid sense and perspective of his calling as he's drawing it to a close. He has a good understanding of what it was that God had him doing and what he responded as such. Uh, he knows that it's a calling and treats it like it is, a vocation from God for God. Moving on in verse 17, he says, So I have reason to be enthusiastic about all Christ Jesus has done through me in my service to God, yet I dare not to boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message and by the way I worked among them. They were convinced by the power of miraculous signs and wonders and by the power of God's Spirit in this way. And in this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum. Illyricum? I don't know. Paul is convinced of the thoroughness of his work, as we hear in that passage, that he did a good job. So as we bring it to close, as we're looking at our calling and how we've responded to that and trying to figure out if we've done a good job, if that calling is done, you know, that's one of the things that we have to look at, whether we did a good job and take a little reflection moment on that. Paul is convinced of the thoroughness of his work. In verse 20, he goes on, My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I have been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says, quote, Those who have never been told about him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. End quote. Paul confirmed through the scripture that his calling was biblical, looking back on that, you know? Did I do a good job? Did I fulfill my calling? Well, was that calling really from God? Was that a true calling? Yes, it was. And he was able to prove that even from looking at Scripture, that his goals were aligned with what God values. We may not have a specific thing where we can point at a prophecy and be like, I'm fulfilling this prophecy right here, but we certainly can align with God's values and goals and even general calling to who we are to be and what, how we're to work with him, work for God over our life. In verse 22, Paul goes on, In fact, my visit to you has been delayed so long because I have been preaching in these places, but now I have finished my work in these regions, and after all these long years of waiting, I am eager to visit you. He's talking to the Romans. Obviously, this is from Romans. He is convinced that his mission is complete. And now he wants to follow his desire to visit the believers in Rome. Notice that that was after 20 plus years in his calling. He says, I've been wanting to do this for so long, but I had my calling at the top of my priority list. And now I feel good about that calling, about bringing that work to completion. And now I want to get along to the things that I desire. This is the level of ambition behind a successful calling. As we're bringing it to close, we understand like what it took for Paul to be successful in his calling. That he was willing to go years upon years and putting aside his own interests and wants in order to feel good about his job in terms of what God called him to. That's the level of ambition we're talking about. And we know that Paul is a man of ambition because before he was called to Christ, he was a Jew and he went around slaughtering Christians with more ambition than anybody. It was a solid character trait of Paul. And that's what it took. That's who God chose to complete this crazy, vast work of being a missionary to the Gentiles. And that's what we should aspire to also, that level of ambition behind our calling. Then he goes on. I am planning to go to Spain, and when I do, I will stop off in Rome. And after I have enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. But this will happen on his way to Spain. So he wants to go to Spain, and he's going to hit them on the way. So he put off his desire to go visit with the Romans and see the church there and spend some time with them. But even so, after he felt like his calling was fulfilled, he was off to the next thing that he was going to do, his next mission in his mind going off to Spain. And he made them sort of a side quest. You know, people get insulted by that kind of thing. You know, I don't want to be a side quest. I want to be the center of things. But Paul understood that his God was at the top of that food chain. And when he could make his personal desires happen with his calling, 
he fit that in, but he was willing to put that off and submit as far as possible until it made sense with what God called him to do. Paul was already planning, yeah, and taking off to another faraway land. And this isn't like the concept of vacationing, right? He wasn't going to Spain for kicks. It's a foreign land. It's long and risky to journey there. He's not a solid Roman citizen. Like, it's not a ratified Roman territory at that point. Like, his protection that he gets from being a Roman citizen doesn't apply there. Um, so on and so forth. And we see uh, the early church father, Clement, right? I, I believe it's in the 100s. It's like 30 years later after Paul's death, um, which is nothing in terms of the historical writing of things. But he says, the early church father, um, sorry, the early church father, Clement, wrote that Paul, quote, had preached in the East and in the West. He won the genuine glory for his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and having reached the farthest limits of the West. In the Roman mind, this was Spain. It's the very western bottom corner of the whole continent there. And that's what he's talking about. Now, we're not sure when this happened, or even necessarily if that happened, because that writing by Clement is not an inspired um, biblical work of God, but it is reliable history for the most part. Um, so there's a couple options. We don't want to get into all the like history and possibilities of that, but basically what we get is that it wasn't like if Paul did get to go there, which it seems like he may very well have, it wasn't a vacation destination for Paul, but a land for another harvest of believers. Like he was continuing again off to his next great calling in that after he finished what he did over 25 years or so, traveling all about that European region there. He continues in verse 25, but before I come, before I come to Rome, I must go to Jerusalem to take a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. And again, we see, before he gets to them in Rome, before he completes what it is that he wants to do, he has to run another important errand for the believers in that area. He's done with his work, but he's like, I gotta do this one other thing for these guys here, and then maybe I'll finally get to you on my way to this other place that I'm going. Again, he shifts his personal priority for his calling, still maintaining and managing his calling all the while, right? Writing letters to different people and touching base with them and so on and so forth. Paul is called permanently to service. He doesn't finish his calling and then retire, right? It's not the American way. It's God's way. It's service for life and being fully behind that. Regardless of his calling being technically ended, his like main, major, crazy calling, that if anybody accomplished anything close to what he did, they would call that a win, chalk that up, and die happy. You know? But not Paul. He wasn't satisfied, and he wanted to keep going. He wanted to serve his God. So to summarize what we see in that whole deal, um, and take note of those things for ourselves, to understand what a successful person that has responded to their calling looks like. So we saw that Paul has a solid sense and perspective of his calling. He knows that it is a calling, and he treats it as such with respect from God, a vocation from God for God, and in the process serving God's people. He confirmed through scripture that his calling was biblical, and he checked that his goals were aligned with God in that, as should we. Paul was convinced that he did a good job, that his work was thorough. He was dedicated for over 20 years to that goal and didn't tire. He was self-sacrificial with his own desires for that goal and those people that he was serving. And before he was done, he was already planning to go off on his next thing, on the next thing that he thought was a good mission. We don't have any indication that God had said, hey, Paul, you're going to go to Spain next. But Paul was like, okay, I'm finishing up my work here. You know, maybe I haven't received any specific revelation from God or whatever, but this is the next thing. Like, this is what he felt called to do, to move on to the next place 
where the gospel hadn't reached yet to continue who he was before God. And then when he did make room for his personal desires, he kept them in submission to working for God in other ways. We saw that Paul was called permanently to service in all these ways, regardless of if his calling had technically ended. Pastor Dad is a pretty good example of that in our own body, right? He worked really hard to serve in churches. He was a missionary across seas. Like, he did all kinds of stuff in service to God, and then he brought a church up out of the ashes, right? A collapsed church, and reformed that. And then he's old, you know? He's at least old in spirit, because he's had a long go of it, you know? Like, he's been in ministry for a long, long time. And he stepped back from his position as an elder, trained other people to come into his place, right? But what is he doing? He's not calling it a day and retiring or whatever. He's still doing podcasts and preparing to train the next round of elders with us and talking about future ministries and being involved in those things, being in communication, and even though they battered around the idea of what retirement looked like as they were making that transition, you know, are they going to keep going to this church or whatever, they've been, you know, pretty reliably coming, um, regardless of physical ailments and, like, all the stuff that comes with old age that I would have no knowledge about yet. (laughs) So, um, yeah, he's a good example to look for in that, in terms of how we want to be transitioning out of that specific calling and looking to continue our ministries in different ways. And I would submit to you that that mindset of my calling does not end has a great effect on how you treat your calling in the middle of it, you know? If you're always looking for when you're going to get out, you're not performing and doing the things that you're supposed to. It doesn't work that way. It's the person that shows up before the beginning, works hard through it, and plans to stay after the end that does the right and thorough and good job with what they've been called to do. But sometimes we don't succeed. We're people. We fail at things. We do and probably have and probably will fail at callings. Shoot, we may have failed at callings that we didn't even know we had. You know? And so we should look at that. That's another way where you are transitioning callings or things are changing with you in terms of what God has for you in that moment. So what does it look like for a person who has failed a calling? We should take a peek at a couple people from the scriptures. Moses is first up. He was called to a special position to lead God's people out of Egypt, right? He's like, you talk to the Jews, he's their main man. Moses was it. He was called to a special position, but he had a hard time responding to the call. Now, we think about the burning bush as the time that he was called, and it certainly is. That certainly was a time when he was called. But why is it that his story starts before that? It starts all the way back to when he was a little bitty baby and Pharaoh had ordered all the Jewish babies to be killed, you know, and he was spared. He was put in a basket and put down the river, and his life was spared by Pharaoh's daughter in Egypt, by the king of Egypt's daughter. She found him and took him in and arranged for him to be cared for and so on and so forth, and he was adopted and raised as royalty. But they knew he was a Hebrew. He knew he was a Hebrew. And he knew that his people were slaves. Worked hard in that land. In Exodus chapter 2, we see in verse 11, Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions and making sure that no one was watching, Moses killed that Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. 
The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend? Moses said to the one who had started the fight. And the man replied to him, Who appointed you to be prince and judge of us? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And Moses felt terrified. You know? He was this person that's raised in this special position, but he felt uh, compelled to step in and protect God's people, even though he had the good life as Egyptian royalty. He felt compelled to step in and protect the people. But he let that out of control and killed that Egyptian. He tried to lead his people in their personal conflicts, even, you know, amongst his own people, and that didn't work out. They turned on him because of how he treated um, that Egyptian. They didn't, he didn't understand what he was doing. He let himself get out of control, and the situation kind of spun on him, and it scared him. They said to him, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Is it a coincidence that this statement, to be our prince and judge, is pretty much exactly what God made him to be eventually for the Jews after the burning bush scenario? He was their main leader to lead that nation out of the Jews, to, organize, to lead that nation out of Egypt and organize them and govern them and so on and so forth under God. Moses, if you look, he had a call from the very beginning. He was set apart from the very beginning. He was put in a position to do something about this with his people before the whole burning bush scenario. He was a person in royal power who had the ear of, you know, Pharaoh's daughter. Like, he was at the table. I would submit to you that he had that calling the entire time. But the first time that he was called, he felt a personal drive to act on it. He had a God-made instinct. Like we talked about the other week, he followed his man-made urge instead of his godly instinct. And he screwed it up. He murdered somebody instead of keeping under control, using the position and the the personality and the training that God had given him as a member of the royal family to do right by his people, to free them. But I would submit to you that he screwed that up. He tried to lead, but he instead made a mistake, and then his people turned on him, and he didn't understand what he was doing, and so he ran away to hide because he was afraid of being killed. And he would have been killed because Pharaoh was looking for him to kill him because he murdered somebody. You know? He didn't put God at the center of his calling in that. He didn't understand what it was that was happening. And Moses spent, because of that, he spent 40 years living in exile of his choosing. He bailed, ran away from Pharaoh, and lived in the region of Midian, I believe, until God called him back to do the same job. Now, Moses' calling was essentially the same, but he burned 40 years of his life until it was that time again for God to call him back, for him to put a burning bush in his face and to call him by name. Because he didn't treat God's call as a call. He treated it as something that he himself was going to do. He was trying to be a vigilante superhero, you know? And it didn't work out. Superheroes have a real hard time with themselves because... They don't understand the whole picture of what their calling is. And so they're trying to hold this burden as one person, and it doesn't work out for us. Moses was trying to hold that burden, and he messed up. He let his anger problem take the best of him, and the situation spun on him, and he had to flee. <clears throat> he didn't see his work set apart as holy. He was trying to do the best he knew how, but on his own. For us, how much time are we willing to burn before God's calling comes around again? You know, if we fail a calling, what does that look like? We're not ready to do that. But is God going to just let us slip by with a free pass? 
Probably not. We see that one of the things that God does is he calls people over and over again to do the same things. Just like he calls his whole nation of Israel over and over to do the same things. Just like he calls all of mankind over and over to do the same exact thing, but reaches us in different ways. This is what we see in the story of Moses too, and we can translate that to us. When we fail a calling or don't realize that a calling was even there, how many years is it going to be before God comes back to us and gives us another opportunity to do what it is that we were meant to do to begin with? And are you willing to take that hit? Are you willing to burn those years of spinning your wheels and trying to figure out what it is exactly that you're doing? I would submit to you that it's a much better life to identify and be all in and figure out how to succeed in our callings, identifying those things and treating them as holy and urgent. Or we can fail and at best wait for God to call again. And I say at best because there are other options that are a lot worse that we can see in Scripture too when people fail their callings. Um, I guess Moses had it decently bad. Like he, They tried to kill him. He had to run to a whole other nation and figure out his life over there. Like That's not very good either. But the next person in line here is Jonah. He was given a calling from God, right, to deliver a prophetic message to the city of Nineveh, a big city, over 100,000 people. It's kind of a big deal in ancient times. And it was a terribly evil city. So Jonah bailed, and he ran the other way when God called him to send this message to Nineveh. He got on a ship, and he got caught in a crazy storm as he was trying to escape God for whatever ludicrous reason that he thought he could do that, you know, to escape his calling. He got tossed overboard by the crew to appease God because everybody is, you know, believes in gods and so on and so forth, and they identified him as the one that disobeyed his God, and so they ditched him over the side of the boat. And Jonah was on board with that. Like, he knew that that was the reason why they were in such a terrible storm. And sure enough, when they chucked him overboard, the storm stopped. And God was kind enough to allow him to be swallowed by a fish for three days. Not the most pleasant of journeys, right? Riding in a big, fat fish. And Jonah, finally, after three days, decided that he was going to repent and come back to God in faith. And so the fish was told to go and spit him back out onto the beach, right? And so Jonah ended up back on land, back in the place where he needed to do his calling, and he went and told the people what he was supposed to tell them, that they were on a path for evil, that they needed to repent, that the one God of the universe was going to destroy them. And he didn't, yeah, he didn't say to those people either, hey, I'm going to destroy you if you don't fix yourself. He said, you guys are going to get destroyed. And they, of their own volition, said, we're going to repent. We believe you. We're going to change our ways. And so everybody from the king all the way down to the animals even were dressed in burlap and ashes and the whole bit of showing that they're sorry for that. And they changed their ways. And God stopped that. He changed his mind. Now let's read chapter 4 of Jonah. This change of plans upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious God and a compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. I knew how easily you could cancel your plans to destroy to destroying these people. Sorry. Not used to this Bible format here. Uh, just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive because nothing I predicted is going to happen. And the Lord replied to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went over to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see if anything would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased some of his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for that plant. 
But God also prepared a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it soon died and it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God sent a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and he wished to die. He said, death is certainly better than this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry just because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, although you did nothing to put it there? And a plant is only at best short-lived, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? So that's the scenario that we see there. God put Jonah through the ringer, you know, put him through that fish ringer, and finally he obeyed. He decided to repent, come back to faith, change his ways. So he got the smack down and taught the lesson on that from his first disobedience by getting put in a storm, thrown out into the ocean, getting eaten by a fish, and like all this stuff, you know. But he still had a bad attitude and was rebellious even after that. And so God staged a situation with this leafy plant and Nineveh and the wind and the worm and all this stuff he staged a plan to teach Jonah further because Jonah didn't get behind his calling and had a bad attitude about that and didn't understand it as a calling, as him doing God's will. He was like, I would rather die than do these things. I would rather die than look bad. And God is like, are you kidding me? You know, like not only is that ridiculous, but you're feeling bad about yourself and about the plant and all this stuff but you're not connecting with your calling. You're not understanding that there's 120,000 people strong here that are in spiritual darkness and need to hear the truth, and you are my messenger for that. Why did he not have a better perspective, have a better attitude on that? And so God had to teach him some lessons with that. We need to really get behind our callings, and if we fail to get behind them, God may not only delay our next chance, but we may need to learn some lessons before we try again, right? Some things that are not going to be pleasant, because let's be honest, people don't learn from pleasant consequences. We just don't. We learn from bad consequences. Ask all the kids around here. Including Milo. <clears throat> um... Yeah, and there's one more, even worse option that I've personally noticed in how God deals with people who don't do right by their call. In Scripture, one of the things that people are called to is positions, right? It's a, it's a clear thing for us to see. They're anointed to positions, to a priest or a prophet or a king. So let's take a look at king of Israel. Kings who don't do right by their calling in the Old Testament, a lot of times they are deposed and kicked out and the next person comes in. A lot of times the way, the vehicle by which that happens is that they die in, in one way or another. Good kings led God's people by following God's law and helping others to follow. Good kings led God's people by worshiping the Lord, by representing God before the people, by administering discipline, right? Are these things sounding maybe familiar as far as the things that we're supposed to do? They are organizing and governing God's people. They are defending the defenseless. They're reading the word of God every day, and they're not considering themselves better than anybody else that is under them. All those things are commands for how kings are supposed to fulfill their callings and who they're supposed to be in that. We have a lot of similarities to those things. You know? In this age, in the New Testament, after Christ, we have all those responsibilities to be all these things for God. So let's look at Saul, the first king of Israel. He was chosen and called by God. Um... 
very blatantly and literally, you know. He started with stepping out of his role and offering a sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel like he was told. He lived his thing, he did his thing as a king for a while, and he was a decent king, you know. But then he started losing his perspective and not doing those things that he was supposed to in his calling. We see him stepping out of his role and offering a sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel to do it like he was specifically told to do by God. Next, he decided to keep the Amalekites uh, nice things when they conquered their land, when they um, were able to put those guys down, and instead of destroying everything, one of their enemies, the Amalekites, they were supposed to destroy all those things as God's command to remove that influence from God's people. But they decided not to do that. Instead, they took those things that they thought were good. And finally, he used a witch and witchcraft in desperation to summon the ghost of Samuel, because Samuel had died, the prophet, to call upon God. Saul wanted to go to war. He wanted to do his thing. And so he was like, I need a prophet of God to tell me if I'm going to succeed or how to succeed in this war. And so he goes to a witch and raises the spirit of Samuel, which really freaked out the witch because it legit happened. And that was another thing that he really displeased God in terms of doing. Throughout this whole process, God progressively tore away the kingdom from Saul and gave it to David without going through all the details, because it's like many, many, many chapters. But God progressively tore away that kingdom from Saul and called it that he was going to do so, and he gave it to David, a man after God's own heart, and let Saul and his sons be killed by the Philistines in that war that he was trying to get this wisdom from, from the prophet Samuel that he, like, called back from the dead uh, by the divination witchcraft situation. So... That was their consequence, is ultimately he was removed from the kingdom, from the lineage. His sons and stuff didn't get their rightful place, and so on and so forth, because he wasn't fulfilling his calling properly. And God instead took a new man, a man after his own heart, and brought him up to be one of his favorite people. Now, several of the kings of Israel and Judah are judged by God, in similar ways. They're warned by a prophet, and then the king refuses to turn back to their calling as God's loyal servants and are removed from their role in one way or another. Some of those things are more like, bam, happened. I'm not going to judge on in terms of why God is doing that. That's not really our place to do, but you can even see in scripture like the more extreme situations call for more extreme measures because God needs to keep his people holy. They represent him before the whole world and they are the vehicle through which the Messiah comes, you know? And so he keeps them holy in that way. Now, they're removed in that role and replaced by the next, who's given a chance. Another particular king um, that I want to visit is Manasseh. Manasseh did a lot of evil in the Lord's sight, too. He worshipped other gods. He practiced divination and witchcraft. You see common themes of disloyalty to God as a main factor in terms of that, um, having divided loyalty. And it's not like these kings didn't worship the Lord their God, Yahweh. They worshipped him too, for the most part, but also worshipped all these other gods. And that is not cool. Especially in their role as an example before all the people. Manasseh is no exception to that. And he murdered many innocent people in Jerusalem and probably elsewhere too. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 10, we read this. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they ignored all his warnings. So the Lord sent the commanders of the Assyrian armies, and they took Manasseh prisoner. They put a ring through his nose, bound him in bronze chains, and led him away to Babylon. So God deposed him from his position and allowed him to be taught a real harsh lesson in that. People didn't treat kings well that were captured, you know? And so it's literally like, a piercing through, there's like some art about it and stuff too, but you know, like a piercing through your nose and then hooked to a chain and then chained like elsewhere and stuff too and led into the city and taken as a prisoner and so on and so forth. And in due time, 
God's pattern would have been that he would rise up another person to take Manasseh's place. That was a time when Israel as a whole was being disobedient. It was time for them to go into exile to learn their lesson. Same type of story over and over again, just in different ways, right? But this story didn't quite end that way. The pattern would have been that God raises up another person to take Manasseh's place, give them a chance to be a good servant, to do the calling that Manasseh didn't, that he didn't fulfill. Um, But it didn't actually end that way for Manasseh. Verse 12, it goes on. But while in deep deep distress, Manasseh sought the Lord his God and sincerely humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed, the Lord listened to him, and was moved by his request. So the Lord brought Manasseh back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh finally realized that the Lord alone is God. So we learn that even in failure and through an evil track record, we can sincerely repent and humble ourselves before God, and he will consider giving us another shot at that. We can vie for the less of the consequences. And don't think that we'll be treated any different because king or, you know, housekeeper or whatever, God has no favorites. King, priest, prophet, or layman. But is that who we want to be? No, it's not. We don't want to go through those options. We don't want to face those possibilities of not following through our callings and being, you know, delayed a time to figure out what it is that God really has us to do or to be taught lessons in this way or that way or kicked out and replaced by somebody else. And hopefully we can repent and God will forgive us in this life and be able to give us another shot at that. We should choose to stay the course of our calling with enough ambition to succeed, right? With enough faith to stand strong and endure that. In any case, success or failure, we see that we're called permanently to service in both success and failure. In success, we can move on to another righteous pursuit or vocation, continuing in a similar line, possibly, as we see, as demonstrated by Paul. In failure, we see Moses be called a second time to a similar role after a long incubation period of being ready to stand up and fulfill his calling. And then I'd like to point out that Moses, after that, he was successful in his calling, right? He did succeed in that, continuing permanently until his death, and even wrote a whole book, Deuteronomy, a big fat book, about setting people up for success coming after him. And in that process doing things like transitioning Joshua into his uh, leadership roles, and so on and so forth. So he was invested in that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, we see that God's expectation is that our calling continue permanently. And he may give us another shot if we have a good attitude. But we don't want to go that route if we don't have to. So we have to know that we have callings permanently and treat those as such. Treat those with holiness and respect. But as we see in Paul, as he tries to, as he starts to fulfill other aspirations, and even Moses, as he transitions his authority to Joshua, the form of that calling and service may change over time, right? So we can potentially move from one calling to another, or one form to another, or however you want to phrase that. The danger in that, in that option, is that our man-made urge is driving this transition, is driving this change, right? Not our God-made instinct, but our man-made urge. So as we're trying to evaluate this situation, whether we've succeeded in a calling or failed in it, or we're just switching things because of a whole number of reasons, we need to figure out where that's coming from. Make sure that our filter is in place that we talked about the other week, that our man-made urges and driving that instead of our instead of our god-made instinct. We need to make sure to renew our hearts and minds every day 
like we talked about in that, as we contemplate those things, as we contemplate our calling, figure out where we're at in relation to God's call, and changes in that as things are changing around us. This is why the future kings were commanded in Deuteronomy to study God's law each day. That was one of the things that God called them out to do, and with help from the priests, you know, as a group effort. Not that they were a lone soldier in that, but they, they were allowing the body that God had put in place around them to help them understand God's law so that they could follow it well for the people and fulfill their calling the way that God would have them. We have to ask if we're running from our calling or quitting or rebelling when we want to change things up, right? Because I would say that the norm is that our calling extends and keeps going and that the exception is that things change in substantial ways. So we have to ask ourselves, with a pure and renewed heart, are we running or quitting or rebelling from that? Or a number of other defense mechanisms. There's tons of reasons why people don't want to do things. There's like all kind of stuff about it. Um, and ask, are those callings, first of all, really mutually exclusive? Can they not coexist with each other? Is it really one or the other? You know, am I called to this, but then I'm completely switching to that? Or is there something where we can hold both of those? Or is it really an either-or situation? Do I really need to stop my current calling? Managing, I would submit to you, is a natural hybrid of leaving and maintaining a calling, right? They can coexist um, in idea, if anything, if not in uh, form or audience. Uh, from a smaller perspective, Paul, for example, switched callings all the time. His calling was to the Gentiles, but if you have a smaller perspective of that, as I would say that we often do in terms of understanding what the heck we're doing in our lives, you know, but he was, Paul was at the church, called to the church in Antioch and to Galatia and Corinth and Ephesus, and Colossae, and Philippi, and all these places, right? And he visited those places for an extended amount of time in a lot of cases, and ministered to those people there. You could say that he was in a calling there, and then he moved on from that calling. But that's not how he treated it, right? He kept being, keeping tabs on those people, and listening to news from there, and writing letters to them, and so on and so forth. Like, he didn't leave that calling, he managed those callings and didn't fully step out and leave those things. He was invested beyond where he was in the moment in time, in terms of before and into the future, and also outside from where he was physically in that moment. And he set up successors to lead in those things, right? He had that whole management process going on as he was called to other places, moving from one place to another. We... Yeah, it's, uh, it's the same process for us with different challenges. You know, we have all sorts of things that need to be done, all sorts of different challenges. And so as we go and we think about, you know, what are we called to? Are we called to do this or this or that? How many of those things can coexist with each other? And is there really a reason for them to be mutually exclusive, not able to be compatible with each other? There's no reason in general why we can't simply add a calling in most cases, except for the stress of it, of course, right? It's never simple or easy, but if it's a real calling, what is it that there really is to fear, right? If it really is a calling from God, I would submit to you that it, if it is from God, we have to ask ourselves, is he the real deal or not, you know, as we're contemplating whether or not we're called to this, or if we've concluded that we're called to something else, what exactly do we do with that? Can we fit that in? Yes, we can. Isaiah in chapter 40 says, in verse 30, even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion, but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles, they will run and not grow weary, they will walk and not grow faint. Also, talking about Paul's experience in his ministry, he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, I know how to live on almost nothing 
or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation. I have learned the secret of doing right by all those situations, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Same message, Old Testament, New Testament, different presentation, same calling, same promise. God certainly knows our capabilities far better than we do. So if our calling is the real deal and God is the real deal, and not recognizing that just as lip service as we like to do, but from a real place in our heart and in our mind, being prepared to submit to the true conclusion that's reached in that, we shouldn't be afraid of adding that calling. We don't want to be a Moses, right? Don't be a Moses. Don't run. Don't object and squirm and fight at every turn. Because after the whole burning bush scenario, right, he's going back to God after he's called incredibly directly, you know, I can't do that. Like, I suck at speaking. I can't go to Pharaoh. Oh, what if I go to my people and they're like, who is this God that you're talking about? Or what if I go to the Egyptians and say, I speak in the name of God? Why would they believe me? Or, you know, like all these things, excuse after excuse. There's like seven of them or something in different forms. We don't want to play that game. If God is who he is and our calling is the real deal, then we have nothing to fear. Because through Christ, we can do that. We can succeed like Paul succeeded in a crazy, vast calling. We don't want to object and squirm and fight at every turn. Then again... Quite frankly, Moses would be an upgrade for most of us. You know? Just being honest. Like, we can look at Moses and be like, oh man, what a wuss, he did this here. But 2020 hindsight, you know? Like, let's be honest here. Moses is a role model for the entire Jewish nation for a reason. Most of us aren't even that good. So sometimes, the biggest issue is realizing that something is a true calling for us, right? That's sort of the crux of it, in terms of when you can say, this is it, therefore, this is what I need to do, and I need to not hold back. But until you come to that conclusion, it's kind of tricky and hard, because you can't have faith in a God who gave you a calling if you don't know if that calling is from God. So once again, we need to remember to view it that way, as a calling from God and keep that close to our heart. It's a big burden in holding that, though, and that's why, as we talked about, we need to share it. Look to God in prayer and the body for confirmation, help in confirming that, coming to that conclusion. That's the best way, as people, that we feel good about our decisions is when other people give us the thumbs up, you know, whether that's insecurity or rationality. It just is how it is. It's how we're designed, and it's how we're made to function, and it's not a bad thing. We're supposed to use each other as confirmation. It's not America's version where you're supposed to do everything on your own, and you're not supposed to take input or advice from nobody, and it's going to be all me, you know? That's not how we work. That's not how we work best, and it's not how God wants us to work. So in this, so we can succeed in all these things, we need to make sure to use our resources as God intended. And when we do actually switch or add or subtract a calling, we need to remember to do that properly and always leave the door open for God. We need to understand that he has the right to change whatever at whatever time and to be aware of that and to have a bead on that, to keep ourselves in scripture so that we understand what things are from God and what things are not from God. Always leave the door open for him in communication to us. Don't get in our rut of what we think is our lifelong calling and then be surprised and miss it when God calls us to something else or something in addition. James chapter 4, verse 13 says, Look here, you who say, Today or tomorrow we're going to go to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We'll do business there and we're going to make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. What you ought to say is if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you're boasting about your own pretentious plans and all such boasting is evil. 
Paul had that mentality. He went hard at his calling, and he was like, he would say things like that, you know, God willing, I'll come to you on my way to whatever. Um, that's who we want to be. That's who we want to be as we seek out our callings, being willing to be flexible and pliable and aware that God has different things for different people, that he has a special idea and a role for us as a specific calling. If history has taught us anything, it's that mankind is terrible at predicting what God will do, right? Just terrible. Even when it's written beforehand in books of prophecy and stuff, like laid out, still can't do it, still can't comprehend it. Take right now, for example, all kind of books in scripture, all kind of passages that say, you know, the world is going to end up like this, and people will be doing this, and God will come back in this way and that way, and people are like, don't care, you know? Even though the evidence of the historical, like, whatever of scripture is pretty much bulletproof, we don't want to hear it. It's because hearts are hardened, right? And we're not immune from those things. We need to keep a soft heart and tenderize it daily with the scripture, with prayer, with all those things, with the interaction within the body and discussion about those things, being flexible and trying to understand God's will. Don't let our sometimes militaristic-esque um, regiment and service make a hard heart, you know? Don't let our, our attempt at being disciplined and all those things make you rigid in terms of what we want to do and how we're going to do it, because God switches it up. And so we need to make sure that our heart stays soft in that and how we respond to a calling and being able to do that in a various amount of ways. And we need to choose the path of success, you know, where you are sure of your calling and vocation as being from God and aligning with Scripture, where you're convicted that you did a good job, where you've submitted and sacrificed to God's goals in your life above your own aspirations and wants and desires, and that you're ready for what's coming next that you are trying to avoid the path of failure, choosing the path of success and avoiding the path of failure, where your loyalty is divided between God and the world, right? Like a, a wave that sloshes back and forth. It's unreliable, and God won't grant you what you ask for if your loyalty is divided between God and the world. That's a promise that we're made. But if we're not divided between God in the world, he will give us those things and equip us for success. And we don't want to be where we're wasting our life in rebellion or refusing to acknowledge or choosing not to look for things in terms of our calling, in terms of God, what God would have us do by intent. <clears throat> and we don't want to certainly end it in humiliation, hoping that God will give us another shot at what we were supposed to do in the first place and not certainly have another person have to replace us. So, when we switch or transition callings, let's do it wisely. Some questions to discuss. How have you experienced success, failure, or a transition of a calling? How have you experienced those things? And where are you at now? How does that match up with the elements of what a successful calling looks like? And how does it match up with the elements of failure? Those things can coexist. You know, seeing different elements of those things. So let's go look at our lives <clears throat> and see what we see. Two cell groups. Um, one in here and one upstairs. Who's the biggest cell group right now? All right. All right. So this cell group assembled down here. That a cell, James cell group assemble upstairs, and the people in my cell group will just divvy out. Got it. <laughs> if you have a cell group that's here that has a leader that's here, go to its place. 
then we'll assign people. Like Heidi, and who else? Julia, and Chris. You.